Well, good morning. I'm doing good. How about yourselves? Good. If the devil had a yard sale, no one would attend. If the devil had a yard sale and he was offering a variety of different tools for those who work his evil intents in the world, if he was offering to sell them, what do you think would be the tools available? And how expensive would they be? I was reading about uh, this and thinking about this. It says, imagine in your mind that you've got all these tools laid out for purchase, hatred, Jealousy, deceit, lying, pride, all these tools laid out before for those who do his bidding to purchase and use. And yet, imagine off to the side, uh, one tool by itself, and it was a suggestion that this one tool would be more expensive than all the others. You walk over and look, and the tool is labeled discouragement. When questioned, the devil said, it's more useful to me than any other tool. When I can't bring down my victims with any of the rest of these tools, like hatred and jealousy and deceit, I use discouragement because so few people realize that it belongs to me. You know, in this world, every good thing, every noble cause, every dream and desire, every, every story that you hear about someone seeking to do good in this world, every dream that you try and pursue or vision you could try and cast, this prophetic vision, isn't there always pushback? Isn't there always strain and difficulty? For, for whatever reason, it is the way of the world. I believe it's evidence of the enemy that's still active in our world. That, that whenever there is someone who is seeking to do that noble deed or event, there is pushback, there's strain. Sometimes from within your own camp, from within the people that are closest to you and believe, and yet somehow the enemy seems to work these tools. And when you feel that pushback, what happens? This wave of discouragement fills and overwhelms. And the temptation is to give up because of the strain, because of the difficulty, because of the betrayal or whatever. The discouragement rises so hard, there's this temptation to give up. The issue is not whether doing good for the Lord, doing good in this world, whether you will face pushback and discouragement. Here's the issue. The issue is, how do we handle it? Will we allow the discouragement to overwhelm and rob us of the vision, of the dream, of the good deed that we have felt led to do? Or will we push 
We've been walking through uh, the story of Nehemiah. If you've brought your Bibles, great. Please uh, turn to Nehemiah. We're actually going to be in Nehemiah 4. If you've not brought your Bibles, there are some located in the seats in front of you. Uh, use the table of contents. That's okay. It's deep in the Old Testament. And, and we have seen and been noticing Nehemiah particularly as a leader, that he has um, really demonstrated these beautiful leadership principles, that he was in uh, the city of Susa serving as the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, and he heard the testimony about the state of Jerusalem, that Jerusalem and uh, Judah and the northern kingdom had been conquered and all the Jews exiled. They had started to come back and they had rebuilt the temple, um, the, the center of worship, the center of their lives, and yet the walls of Jerusalem were still burned down. The gates were still down. They were vulnerable. They were in disgrace. Nehemiah hears that. And he turns that over to prayer. And as he prays for four months, God works in him this prophetic vision that he would be the one to lead, and to, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem for the glory of God. We, we, we've seen God work this holy discontent in Nehemiah's life. That he said, this is not okay. We saw him courageously and prayerfully go and gain permission from King Artaxerxes at the risk of his own life to travel 800 miles to Jerusalem. We saw him strategically look at the walls and then invite the people to join him. Chapter 3, I'll let you read that on your own. Uh, but really, chapter 3 is about all these different families, the priests, the rulers, daughters, brothers, finding their place on the wall, saying, this is a big wall. This is a massive project. We don't know if we can get this done, but I will find my place on the wall. That's really the message of, uh, of uh, Nehemiah 3. As you read over that this week, would you, would you hear that message? God is saying, have you found your place on the wall? Have you been stirred? Are you serving with the gifts that I have given you? Ha have you allowed God to stir within you? And have you found your place in the kingdom of God to join him in building the kingdom? That's the message of chapter 3. We come to chapter 4, and chapter 4 is where Nehemiah and the Jews face adversity. They face discouragement. They face ridicule and threat and plots of the enemy to discourage and stop their work. And I believe the, the, the brilliance of Nehemiah is how he handles discouragement in chapter 4. We're going to meet some guys named Sanballat um, and others, and they are in some way, shape, and form, so they're probably uh, part Jewish, and yet uh, Sanballat was the, he was ruler of Samaria, and so to, to a strong Jerusalem was a direct threat against his power. 
So he's going to gather other leaders in the area where Jerusalem represents a threat. And so they're going to start making threats and plotting against the nation of Israel. So Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 1 reads, when Sambalot heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, so these aren't empty threats, there's, there's real strength and, and military behind him, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah, another ruler in the area, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down the wall of stones. It's just a pile of rubble. They're just making the rubble higher. Hear us, O God, Nehemiah. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So, verse 6, how do they respond to these insults? So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sambalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall has gone on ahead, that their discouraging insults and ridicule didn't work, the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah, they were part of the Jews. They were rebuilding the walls. And yet we're going to hear that this outside threat starts to work in the people of Judah and start to sow seeds of discouragement and strain. Verse 10, meanwhile, the, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. You hear the power of the insults. You hear the power of the ridicule working into the soul of the people. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among us and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. Their lives were in danger can imagine their hands shaking, their, their will weakening, their hearts being dismayed. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Whatever, wherever you turn, they will attack us ten times over. They were repeating this. Therefore, Nehemiah, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, 
I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men, Nehemiah, did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah. Remember that? The people that were weary and scared who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did the work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side. And as he worked, but the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Verse 19, then I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So it's an extensive wall. They're spread out, but he has a plan. If there is an attack, if they come, hear the trumpet, come to the trumpet and meet us there. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears for the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. That's quite a chapter, isn't it? If you don't remember anything from this morning, well, you probably remember the the devil's yard sale, but don't remember that. Remember verse nine. Look at verse nine. If you've got your own Bibles, if you've got a highlight, circle this, write this. I love the principle of verse nine. Verse nine says, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night, to meet this threat. That's a beautiful illustration of Nehemiah's kingdom leadership, if you will. It's faith and action working together. It's the union of the divine side and the divine perspective with the human side and the human perspective. This chapter is a beautiful illustration of a godly leader dealing with enemies, and not just the enemies meeting that in, in, a, in a divine way, in a human side, but also in dealing with the discouragement and the fear and the strain that comes when we are faced with opposition in this life. Let's first look at how he specifically deals with the en- uh, enemies, Sanballat and all the others. Do you notice that the first thing that Nehemiah does, what does he do? What's the first thing? Look at verse four and five. What's he do? First thing he does, hear us, O God. He prays before the Lord. He seeks the Lord's counsel. Now let's read verse five together, that prayer. And and here's my question. As we read read this, do we get to pray like this today? Uh, Hold on just a second. Let me read verse five. 
Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Do we get to pray like that today? <laughs> now you change it. Boy, that, that really pushes against what? It, it, it pushes against grace. It pushes against the work of Jesus Christ. It, it pushes against uh, the way we are to pray for the forgiveness of sins, for people to turn. I, I, I get it. This kind of prayer, it, it really flows from our human nature, doesn't it? Right? I, I think that we do get to, in, in a sense, the answer is yes. We get to pray this way. God allows us to pray our anger and our pain. Does God answer that kind of prayer with the affirmative? That's a different story. The, the, what I think is, is happening here, which is super important, is that we, we learn these beautiful lessons from the Old Testament and a life lived thousands of years ago, a godly leader, but there's key moments when we need to allow the ministry of Jesus Christ and the new covenant to shape and form how we pray and live. Do you understand? That, that there is a, a way that we need to allow the, this beautiful gospel of grace to minister and affect how we pray and deal with our enemies. Now, I will say this. What, how we do get to pray is we get to pray against evil in every circumstance. Can I get an amen? Amen. And, and we get to pray against injustice in every circumstance, don't we? And we get to pray against the work of the enemy in every circumstance, in every people. We, um, uh, the psalmist says this, uh, Psalm 7, 8, and 9. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity. So the, the psalmist is praying for his own integrity, his own righteousness, right? He doesn't want any unrighteousness or evil. He's praying against evil within himself, almost high. O righteous God, who searches minds and hearts, bring an end to the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. And he's praying against the unrighteousness. And he's praying against the wickedness in all the world. We get to pray like that. Friends, I do believe that, that in my life I have been wronged in, in very profound ways. I'm not going to go into those details, um, but I, I've been wronged in, in profound ways. And have I ever prayed for, for the removal of my enemies from the face of the earth. I'd be lying if I told you I didn't. All right? So, yes, I've prayed that way. Do I pray that now? For the most part, no. I haven't arrived there, okay? Just being real with you. 
right? But so, but how I still pray today. Do you think I pray for justice today? Absolutely. Do I pray against wickedness today? Absolutely. Do I pray for healing for myself, for protection for myself? I pray against the bitterness and discouragement that would come in my life from things that have been perpetrated against me. I don't want to allow evil that I perceive has been perpetrated against me to form and shape my soul, my heart, and my life. Do you understand? I don't want it to form and shape my family or my kids or my ministry or my church. So in every instance, whether it's, it's lying or deception, I pray against that and I pray for justice and freedom. We get to pray that way. But then we also need to pray for our enemies in different ways. We also have to pray not only against evil, but also for redemption and the restoration of all things. That when we read prayers like this, we have to be mindful of Jesus' words towards enemies. Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yes! Yeah! May they wallow in their sins and be cut off from you, God! Jesus goes on. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This is who the Father is. Yes, he's a God of justice and judgment, but he's also a God of mercy and grace and love. And who he is, his character should affect how you relate to your enemies, how you relate to those people who stand against you, how you relate and pray for the people who would openly work against you. So I pray on the good days, on the healthy days. Pray for the transformation of my enemies in Jesus Christ. I pray that they would discover a, a relationship with him that's vibrant and holy. I pray for repentance and for truth and for healing and restoration. Redemptive prayers for our enemies can be so powerful as we take our enemies and we take our circumstances and we place them in the hands of our merciful God. It's a true story from a number of years ago. It was from the Associated Press. It was a, a Cindy Hartman of Arkansas. She walked into her home 
and was confronted by a burglar. And he ripped the phone. She had the phone in her hand. He ripped it out of her hand and uh, put her in a closet. She got into the closet and she dropped to her knees. And before the burglar closed the door, she said, I want you to know that God loves you and I forgive you. This is while the burglary is taking place. Um, the burglar suddenly apologized. Then he yelled out the door to a woman in a pickup truck and he yelled this, we've got to unload all of this. This is a Christian home and a Christian family. We can't do this to them. As Hartman remained on her knees, the burglar returned furniture he had taken from her home. Then he took the bullets out of his gun, handed the gun to Hartman, and walked out the door. You never know what redemptive prayer, how it's going to work in your enemies. Friends, is there someone that you, you, you feel the animosity in your heart? There's that frustration, that, that, that struggle, and that pain. And in the quiet moments of your heart and soul, they're there. They're right there. You can feel the anger. Who is that person that you need to start praying for today? Who is God stirring you that your first moment in times of discouragement and strain and difficulty and push back that your first response is on your knees not for their complete annihilation and destruction or at least if you start there you get through that and then say okay God help me to pray as you want me to pray how do you pray for justice and the redemption and restoration of all things. Now, Nehemiah deals not only with the enemies. He, he prays for them. We're going we're gonna to talk about his strategic aspect. But I also want you to notice from Nehemiah 4, he doesn't just deal with the enemies, but he deals with the discouragement and the pushback that is seeping into the lives of the people, the hearts and the minds of the people. Did you notice that, that he doesn't just make a plan, but he addresses... Um, the people. Look at verse 14. He says this, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. I, I think Nehemiah is illustrating this beautiful principle that godly leaders have that secular leaders don't have. It's somewhat, I would call it, this trump card of godly leaders. I mean that in a faith sense, not in a political sense, right? that we get to use this, and this is the faith factor, that whatever circumstance we're facing, whether it's at job or in a relationship or our health, whatever that is, we get to say, but God. 
We get to say, but even though I feel the strain, even though I'm filled with fear and anxiety, but God is still on the throne. But God knows me and loves me. But God is a God who is personal and at work in my life. But God is a father who knows my needs, who knows my difficulties. On anything that we're facing, any struggle or strain, we get to say, but God. That's a kingdom mindset that we can bring to any circumstance in our lives. Amen. One of the the privileges of being a pastor is that I get to visit people in hospitals, get to talk with people, shepherd them through funerals. Oftentimes these are moments of insecurity and, and fear and loss. And uh, before I'll go to a hospital or meet with someone, I'll always try and pray, um, Lord, is there, is there a scripture? Is there a, a particular way in which that you want to minister to these folks? Oftentimes, it's Psalms. He, he draws me to the Psalms, so I like to read some scripture there. There is one Psalm that he draws me to more than any other psalm. It's not Psalm 23. He draws me to Psalm 23 a lot, okay? Um, That is my favorite psalm. But there's another psalm that he draws me to more often, and, and it's Psalm 121. The whole psalm, I'll just read the first couple of verses. I lift my eyes to the mountains, Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So often as we are dealing with discouragement and pain and a struggle, we're forgetting this principle of saying, but God. We're we're forgetting where we rest in being overwhelmed and weary and difficult and we fail to do what the psalmist is inviting us to, to lift our eyes and say, he, he's in control. He, he knows me. He, he's prom- my, the, the hairs on my head are, he, are numbered by him. He's got me. He loves me. He's concerned for the details of my life. And whatever we're facing, whether physical health and that diagnosis, whether it's that job and that career, whether it's parenting or or marriage, whatever that difficulty, we get to lift our eyes and say, but God is enthroned in heaven. And he's got me. Now, I wanted to bring just a little bit of a nuance to that but God, all right? It's a a nuance that learned a while ago. It's beautifully illustrated by a a story from World War II. I don't know why I've been stuck on World War II, but this is, uh, maybe it's because the movies that I've seen are out there. 
But there's this cool story that I, I just thought related to this nuance. And it's about, um, it's from the story of Dunkirk. Anyone see the movie Dunkirk that was recently out? A number of you. So the story was a crucial moment in, in World War II where um, all, all the Allied troops were being pushed back uh, by the Nazis and they had cornered them in Dunkirk and there was a real doubt that they would be able to get these hundreds of thousands of Allied troops off and away from France. So they're all gathered at Dunkirk um, and apparently there was a British officer that sent the following message condensed to three words. And um, I don't know, there, there's no story about whether it was related to a Bible study or an understanding, but it was significant. And these three words were this, but if not. I get choked up every time. <laughs> so I knew what story they were talking about. You're talking about this message is related to the book of Daniel. When Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were about to be thrown in the fire because they would not worship the other gods, and they said this back to King Nebuchadnezzar. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. Do you hear the faith in that? Do you hear the confidence in that? They're saying, but God. They're seeing it with godly eyes. But then they go on. And they say to the king, but if not. If there's a circumstance that we don't understand, if there's some way that God is going to allow difficulty and strain, that's on God. That's not on us. That's not part of our faith. We leave that to God. We have faith and trust in our Father that he's in over all things, that he is powerful and will deliver us. But if not, if it's in his will, that he would not deliver us in this day. Be it known unto you, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which is set up. You see, their faith and their confidence was not resting on the circumstance or the result of their prayer. Their faith and their confidence was resting on the character of God. And their lives were put in the hands of God. And regardless of the outcome, they were saying, we will do the right thing. We will not compromise our lives and faith. And the allied soldiers were saying, but if not, we will fight this evil. We will stand against it. And God will be responsible for the results. Now Dunkirk is, is known by many as the miracle of Dunkirk. They orchestrated a, a thousand ships, ordinary 
uh, British folks sail rowboats, they said. That any ship that would float, they, they made it across. They say there's also a miracle in that the, the English Channel was as smooth as glass. And at, at just the right time, clouds and mist and rain and fog would sweep over that they believe that if there's any change, a slight change in the wind, and they would have been revealed. It would have cost hundreds, possibly thousands of lives. I want my, my leadership to be but God and also but if not. I'm still going to do the right thing. I'm still going to work in this job with integrity. I'm still going to handle this relationship in a way that God says I should. I'm still going to not give false testimony. I'm still going to speak the truth. I'm still going to fight for integrity and righteousness in every, because God has got me. And he's responsible with the results. Look at verse 9 one more time. Said, but we prayed to our God. He sows faith. He says to the people, trust God and fight. We prayed to our God and posted a guard. I remember that oftentimes, the tool things. I pray, I seek, I ask God to increase my faith. And yet in Nehemiah, we see this strategic work on his part. He, he stations guards at the lowest and most vulnerable places at the wall. He, he divides up the workers. He says, half of you work and the other just stand guard. In other places, he said, can you hold a spear in one hand and can you work in the other? He, he takes precautionary measures uh, with the trumpet. He says, all right, here's our plan. If they really do go through with their threats, don't worry, we've, we've got a plan. If you hear the trumpet, gather to me. He, he takes all these things and, and he puts them together. He doesn't just pray. He starts there but then he uses every strategic aspect that he can think of from a human perspective to meet that threat. One time I was praying and I was saying, God, could you handle this? God, why have you left this issue open? God, can you take care of it? I don't get it. Would you help me? And you know what I felt was impressed in my heart? I felt like he said, figure it out. And I said, God, I don't want to figure it out. You know it. Would you just take care of it? Guess what I heard again? Figure it out. There, there's this invitation to say, Eric, I, I've given you brain matter, Eric. I expect you to use it. it, it it's part of the journey. 
There's not only a faith factor, but I'm calling it the, the figure it out factor. That he's saying, I want you to use wisdom and understanding. By the way, who's the source of all wisdom? The Lord is. The Holy Spirit's the one that's going to give you counsel and wisdom and understanding, right? He, he wants us to, he wants to work it in our hearts and souls. One of the most confusing parables that Jesus ever tells is about the dishonest servant. And he commends the dishonest servant. The master, who represents God, commends the dishonest servant. And do you know what he commends him for? Not dishonesty. He does not commend him for that. He commends him for being shrewd. He says this, This is Luke 16, 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. He's saying the people that you're going to deal with in this world are broken and nasty and sinful if they're not redeemed through Jesus Christ. So I don't want you to be naive. I don't want you to be unintelligent in the way that you deal with them. In fact, listen to the synonyms for shrewdness. Astute, sharp-witted, smart, acute, intelligent, clever, canny, perceptive. I really like this one. Sagely wise. I'd really like to be sagely wise. Wouldn't that be sweet? Would you agree with me that Nehemiah demonstrates a shrewdness, a wisdom, an intelligence of meeting that fight? The people that he was dealing with are broken, filled with immaturity and sin. And he was not naive. He wasn't just saying, God, help me. But he was also doing some deep thinking and action, faith and action against the pushback, the discouragement and strain. Friends, faith is not in opposition to shrewdness. Faith is not contrary to intelligence and, and, and being clever and, and being smart and sharp-witted. Faith is, in this beautiful chapter, is being connected with faith. It, it, it's a faith and a shrewdness, a faith and an intelligence and, and a wise thinking. Friends, is there an issue today that you are facing that the Lord would happen to be saying, figure it out, I'll provide you, but would you pray, would you wrestle, would you listen, would you think through, would you seek wise counsel, would you seek to understand and allow the wisdom of God to fill your thoughts and your hearts. Don't let discouragement beat you. 
If you are on this noble work, if you are fighting for God, if you are seeking restoration and redemption in every area of your life, you will receive pushback. You will get that diagnosis. You will hear that discouragement. You will face doubt from the people that are closest to you. But don't let the enemy beat you. Be wise, post a guard, and pray. Seek the Lord and allow him to, it's an old King James, but gird up your loins. That's the King James. Get ready for the fight. If God is with you, Who can be against you but God? Whatever you're facing today, but God, he's got you. Join him. Think deeply. Allow wisdom and faith to come together in your own heart and soul.